This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Oh, back to school, back to school to prove to Dad that I'm not a fool. I got my lunch packed up, my boots tied tight. I hope I don't get in a fight. Oh, back to school. <laughs> How could we not play that today? That, of course, Adam Sandler in the movie, Billy Madison. I know parents, some of you out there, fingers crossed, you're counting down, right? Just that this is the day. This is the last day to entertain the kids because tomorrow is back to school. I know the first week is slow, right? It'll be an hour here, hour there, an adjustment, figuring out which class, getting everybody back. But really, the process starts tomorrow for you. So we are asking you for our hot question of the day today. Are you happy that your children are going back to school? Do you think, yes, peace and quiet, finally in the house, routine, structure, all of that stuff that comes with going back to school? Are you thinking, no, I will miss them. I will miss the carefree days of summer where everybody was looking at me and asking, what are we doing today? What are we doing today? Because that's usually what goes on in a lot of people's houses, struggling to find childcare for some parents. What other camps can you sign your kids up for? What else can you possibly do to keep them busy? Are you going to miss that? Or are you looking forward to your kids going back to school tomorrow? So, Vote in our hot question of the day today. We're having a little fun with this, obviously. You can go to SimiSarah980 on Twitter. You can go to at CKNW and vote. You can also email me, Simi at CKNW.com. When my kids were younger, because they're older now, they're 19 and 22, um, and only one now, one's graduated from university. The second one is just in university. And I, I sent him off uh, late last week back to school on the East Coast. And I was like, sad, even though I'd been saying all summer, God, I can't wait until this kid goes back to university. (laughs) On the weekend, I thought, oh, I'm sad now. He's gone. Is that how a lot of parents feel? Do you think when they were in elementary school and, and high school, I couldn't wait for school to start until they were busy again and doing stuff and all of that. But now once they're older, do you think, oh, I miss those days. I miss that. What do you think? Are you happy your kids are going back to school or not? Are you going to miss them? So cast your vote. You can also email me, simmy at cknw.com. If you have a good back to school story, tell us. You can give us a call on our buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ, 331-2899. And remember, you can catch it at Simi Sarah 980 We actually put this up about half an hour ago. And right now, I tell you, parents, it's overwhelming. 67% at this point saying, yes, they're looking forward to their kids going back to school. 33% saying, no, I'll miss them. Where do you stand on that? Let us know. Tell you her political career has been as varied as it has been impressive. Now, Libby Davies started out as a community organizer, ended up being a longtime Vancouver MP, but she has always, always, always fought for the downtown east side of the city and the people who live there. And now she's telling all sorts of those stories and the stories of that journey in a political memoir called Outside In. And Libby Davies joins us now in studio to talk about that. Thanks so much for being here. Oh, my pleasure. What was it like writing the book? Because there's a lot of memories in there. I loved writing the book. It took me about two years on and off. And I actually found the writing of it relatively easy. It just sort of came pouring out. I guess it had been rattling around in my head for quite a few years. Editing is another thing, but I really enjoyed writing. 
I think what I really loved about it was it paints a picture of history of the city that not many people can tell. For instance, and we were talking about this off the air, uh, the mental picture I had of former city councilor Bruce Erickson, your husband, Harry Rankin, longtime legendary Vancouver councilor, and Jack Webster having breakfast in the mornings across from the police station on Main Street. Yeah, and I used to, they used to meet at like 6.30 in the morning. I sometimes would get up and drag myself down there too. And listening to these three guys, I'll tell you, it was like a reality show <laughs> way before <laughs> its time. And of course, they're all characters. You know, Webster yes. would be sort of growling out whatever and, and, and Harry would be bad-mouthing everybody at City Hall and Bruce would be talking about what he found in beer parlors. And I would sit there and listen. I was pretty young. And uh, yeah, it was it's a very vivid memory of listening to these guys just like talking up a storm every day. It's amazing. Just some of the stories in the book. Now, you said at the beginning that the greatest challenge in your career has been your own feelings of inadequacy. Where do you think that came from? I think it's partly a gendered thing. I've spoken to many women in politics and the media too, labor. And I th- I think, it. you know, I don't have any formal training. I kind of happened to become elected, not by accident, but I I never made a career choice. And so I've always had this sense of not being good enough, of being an outsider. I've heard it's called the imposter syndrome, right? And and women do do deal with this. And it's taken me years to kind of unpack it and reflect on it. Because when I was young, I didn't think about sexism. I didn't think about discrimination. I was so busy, madly working on issues. And it's only later in life and even writing the book that I've been, you know, I've begun to think, wow, you know, so I've been thinking about sexism and what it means um, about women's place in politics and, and the experiences we have. But I always, I always did have that sense of doubt. And then I would catch myself and say, come on, hey, what? I know how to do this. Yeah. I know I'm as good as those guys, maybe better, you know? And so I, it's just something that's always been there. And I felt like I needed to you know, talk about it a little bit because I think it's something that many of us share in in the very public world that we work in. You talk about your time as a community activist, how you got into that life, how you met your husband, Bruce Erickson, and that life that you built together. But your formative years, you said you had a relatively secure and stable middle-class environment upbringing. How did you end up doing what you were doing? Uh, I had very independent parents uh, who were always very political, particularly my dad. And it was actually my father who first started working in the downtown east side at the First United Church. Before it was called the downtown east side, it was still called Skid Road. And so I think he instilled in me a great sense of um, uh, the need for social justice and helping people and serving the community. I think that came from both my parents. Um, and I wanted to write about transformative change, how it takes place. You know, so many people feel cynical about politics and get turned out. And I I wanted to um, share with people an experience that if we're engaged as activists, as as local residents, whatever it might be, then change happens when we're when we're not engaged, when we feel cynical. And so much in today's world is about making people right. feel cynical about everything around them, right? And so I wanted to kind of speak out and say 
if we're involved, if we're engaged, we can actually bring about transformative change. And I, you know, I worked on a lot of issues that were not considered mainstream. And I wanted to show how you could be in public life and still work on things that weren't, you know, motherhood or, or popular or mainstream. And you can bring about change. And I wanted to try and share how that happens. Yeah, you became so closely identified with a party, with the NDP, and yet you were writing in the book about how it didn't start out that way. You didn't start out being like, I'm going to work for the NDP. It started out because you really liked Emery Barnes. Yep. <laughs> he was a great guy. Um, yeah, I worked in that 1972 provincial election when Emery first ran. Um, and, you know, my politics was never so much about the party. It was always more about the issues, working on the issues and the connection to the community. I think that's what really grounded me. And, you know, in Ottawa, it's really easy to get kind of sucked into all the intrigue and the drama and the the politics. And it's like a big vortex, you know, and I, it was East Van that always kept me grounded coming back here every week from Ottawa. It was meeting like folks in the downtown East side or on commercial drive or wherever it might be, you know, my office in Mount Pleasant. That's what kept me grounded and real. Uh, but someone like Emery Barnes, you know, he, he, to me, he was a real hero and he was kind of the real deal. So you know, I, I realized that a lot of my mentors were, were men, right? There wasn't that many women and very few progressive women in politics at the time. So it's people like Emery Barnes and Bruce Erickson and Harry Rankin and um, that I realized, you know, that I, I kind of learned politics from. But I, I learned it mostly from literally being on the street as an organizer. What's changed, do you think, in the downtown east side in all the years that you have been working there and advocating for people? Well, it's a, it's a really good question. So much has changed for the better. Some things are unfortunately still a crisis. Um, housing is still a huge issue. We've lost so many of the old hotels and rooming houses um, that, you know, people being evicted and having nowhere to go is still a huge issue, even though much social housing has been built. It's actually why I ran in 97. I was so mad that the federal government had cut out social housing programs that I had relied on along with other city councillors when I was on city council and co-ops in the city that were built and social housing or housing for seniors. It was suddenly gone. Um, and so housing is still an issue, even though there is new housing. When I first started working in the downtown east side, people weren't, they weren't like destitute. There was poverty, but you could still get to the Ovaltine Cafe and have a cup of coffee. Um, now, of course, it's much different. Like people are still are, are destitute because the income assistance has not kept pace with the cost of living. The overdose crisis did not exist when I first was in the neighborhood in the 70s. Um, I've seen two waves of that when I first got elected, when we had so many overdoses. And of course, again, today, we're still seeing the, the overdose crisis. And I'm very glad that, that city council is taking action. I mean, Vancouver's always led the way on that. And it's been a very important lesson to see how it's been a very bottom up thing. Like I had to fight like hell in Ottawa to get some changes that we needed. Uh, to example, you know, set up the safe injection site insight that now nobody would question. Yeah, you know, it's just like, oh, yeah, that's part of the what we need to do. But you know, in 2000, 2003, it was, it was very controversial. Yeah. So Vancouver's always led the way. And I think that's been really quite amazing. Um, so, so some things are the same and some things have changed, but, you know, it's like, it's, it's a matter of, of, um, finding security for people, right? And making sure that people aren't thrown out of their own neighborhood. That's still an issue. 
Well, Libby Davies is a very familiar face and name to people in BC, longtime MP, longtime city councillor, longtime community activist. She's written a book called Outside In. It is her newly published memoir. I highly recommend it. And she's with us today to talk about it. 18 years that you spent in Ottawa. What was that like? Well, you know, the good and the bad and the ugly. Yeah. I mean, it, I loved being an MP. It was like an incredible privilege and honor to to serve in parliament. There were parts of the job that I, you know, I found really difficult and challenging. And I was glad to get back to Vancouver every week when I would come home and kind of get grounded again. Um, but it's it's a fascinating place. Um, and I learned a lot. You know, I was house leader for the NDP for eight years. And amazingly, I was the second woman in the whole history of Parliament to be a house leader. The first woman had only done it for about a month. So it, it was like, really? You know, more than 100 years and there's, I'm really sort of in effect the first woman house leader for any political party. It, so it is a very male-dominated environment and, and I kind of learned how to navigate that. But I've also been thinking about a lot in terms of the sexism that, that's still very much part of the culture there. And stuff that you saw that oh, in 18 years. Oh, I not just saw it, I experienced it. And, you know, I, and I think about it more and more and, and, you know, maybe I'll write on it some more. But it's... You know, changing the culture of parliament um, is not easy. It's an old institution. There are rules. There are procedures. Um, and, you know, saying that you're going to change the culture, but actually, you know, doing it in the way people interact with each other and the way women are treated or any underrepresented group. And I think it's even more so for racialized women and indigenous women. It's a, it's an even, you know, bigger challenge and obstacle that they face. Um, so there's more women in parliament. There's more young women, which is fantastic. And one, one thing I've learned is that I think younger women absolutely do not put up with what I experienced, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, right, where I was kind of quiet. And uh, in fact, I remember one interview that my son found with Jack Webster from 1982. And, you know, he was being sexist. And like, I was so polite. And today, I just think, you know, first of all, a young woman just would not put up with it. And so, th so times change, which is fantastic. But it's it's very much a culture that that needs to change, not only in in Ottawa and in Parliament, but many other places as well. Of course, you mentioned that the culture did change in that eighteen years that you were in Ottawa, but it went from being more collegial to more hyper partisan. Yeah, um, more hyper partisan, and I think less independence for individual MPs. The the advent of uh, social media and and how quickly the news cycle so this has a lot to do with the media yeah. how fast the news cycle is i mean you know it's literally by the hour or if not by the minute and so all of the political parties you know how they respond to that how they now put out sort of what we call message boxes right and yeah. that you stick to that and things are so fast paced and changing i mean i saw a lot of that change so when i first got elected I feel like there was more space for an individual MP to do what they wanted to do, to speak out, to, uh, to you know, to take up an issue. Uh, but but over those 20 years, um, it, ha it has become more partisan, I think, and I wish it weren't so, and I think we need to change that. I think Canadians would like to see that, 
um, and secondly, to to allow individual members of parliament more space to do a great job and to work with each other across party lines. Is that not allowed? Or oh, yeah, do it's they allowed, want to? But, it's, but so much is party-focused, right. right? It's a very hierarchical place. It's very focused on... You know, this is the government, this is the opposition, this is the third party, this is what you do. It's top down. You know, it's, yeah, it's very hierarchical. Huh. Uh, was there something that, I mean, you spent 18 years there, you did a lot, you accomplished a lot, but was there something that was left off the list that you think, oh, one more thing, I wish I could have tackled that? Um, no, I think I tackled some tough issues that came from the community I represented and my my task was to put them on the national agenda and to get the government to act. And I feel like I was able to do that successfully, working with people in Vancouver and in the community. Um, so when I left in 2015, I didn't run in the, that last election. I felt like it was ready to call it a day. And I felt good about that because, you know, like, Doing it yourself, making your own decision. Yeah. It, you, you know, Not you having feel, the voters decide yeah, it for you. That's yeah. That's okay. <laughs> um, that felt good, right? And I felt, okay, it's time for me to go. You know, it's time for new people to be here. Um, I've done what I needed to do. And I'll, you know, I still continue to work on the issues I always did. I probably always will. I'm definitely a sort of a political animal, but, um, but, but, as far as being in Ottawa, it was time for me to uh, to come back to Vancouver and be here. You were there during the Orange Crush, during yes. that election, right with Jack Layton. Mm-hmm. What do you think the party needs to do to get back there? Well, I think the party needs to be very bold in its vision. Um, I know that my good friend Sven Robinson, who's running in this federal election again after being away a few years, he always talks about the mushy middle and that we shouldn't be the mushy middle. Um and I, I do. I think he's right. You know, the NDP. We need to really stand for what we believe in. And I think you know the big issue right now is is global warming, climate change, and the economy, and how it's going to how the economy's got to change. And I I believe that the NDP is the party to do that because we do have a great connection with the labor movement. And it is about making sure that people, uh, you know, have a just transition, that there are good jobs. I mean, it's going to be a huge shift in our economy, in the workforce. Um, but, but it's got to be done and we can't shy away from it. We can't wait. So I just signed the, um, Pact for a new Green Deal that's come out in the last couple of weeks. I hope it's a, a central election issue. You know, there's lots you said of debate you hope. on Do you this. think it will be? Are Canadians I think prepared so. to do that? Yeah. I mean, you know, the, already, you know, the carbon tax sheer, the, the leader of the Conservative Party is making that an issue. So what these parties do in terms of climate change, what they're really going to do and not talk is going to be very critical. And so I want the NDP to be very bold and forward-looking and, and you know, no BS. Like, tell us what needs to be done. Show us the leadership. And I think a lot of people will say, yeah, right on. That's what needs to be done. So that sounds like somebody who still has a lot of thoughts. There's an election coming up this fall. Will you be working for the NDP for that? Will you be out there? I'll be I'll be helping. Um, I, I don't think I'll be playing a major role, but I'll be helping. I did in the last election when I didn't ran, run. Uh, and I'm sure I'll do, you know, things here and there. Of course, I'll be watching <laughs> um, like everybody else. Um, and, you know, it's going to be a very important election because time is running out. And so what these political parties do in response to 
climate change and the economy and jobs um, is going to be very critical, especially for um, you know young people. What is their future? You know, when I, when I was young, the fear was nuclear weapons. You remember when Vancouver yes. was a nuclear weapons free zone? Well, yeah. it still is. We were so scared about bombs dropping on the city. Now it's global warming, right? And so I, I really worry about the anxiety that young people have about their future, you know, what, and they feel like this planet is being destroyed. So time is running out. So it's very critical that uh, everybody step up both inside and outside. On that note, Libby, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. The book is called Outside In. It is Libby Davies' political memoir. I do recommend that you check it out. You're going to learn a lot about history and Canadian politics. It's not the kind of story that you hear about every day, facing years of abuse after arriving in Canada as a teenage bride to marry someone that you hardly know. But that hasn't stopped Samra Zafar from pursuing her dreams and just talking about all of that. Her book that just came out is called A Good Wife, Escaping the Life I Never Chose. And Samra joins us now. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Give people a little bit of the idea of the book, first of all. Like, what happened? Uh, I was 16 years old when I was pressured into a marriage and uh, getting married to a man who was 11 years my senior and uh, lived in this big, beautiful, and very cold country called Canada. You were living in Pakistan with your family. I was living in Pakistan. I, was, I grew up in Abu Dhabi, uh, originally from Pakistan. And uh, so I came here as his bride uh, and uh, became a teenage mom and faced uh, a lot of abuse for over a decade uh, and just fought um, every day for my right to an education and my right to a life of respect. How did it happen to you, Samra? I mean, you had a good family, nice household, but then all of a sudden when you moved to Pakistan, things seemed to change. Uh, as in from uh, Abu Being Dhabi? The, the pressure, yeah, from Abu Dhabi and you moved to Pakistan. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, I was the eldest of four girls uh, in a very traditional Pakistani Muslim family. And uh, there was a lot of pressure on my parents, uh, you know, to get four girls married off. I was um, also growing up too fast, according to people, you know, tall, what developing body. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like so you have any control over that. Exactly. But. Yeah. So like a bit of a time bomb <laughs> waiting to explode sort of thing. And um, and I had a lot of dreams. I had uh, dreams of getting an education and going to, you know, universities that are abroad. And I was very passionate about my career and uh, and fulfilling my dreams. And I was often told that my dreams were too big for me because I'm a girl. And uh, the only way that I would be able to go abroad is, you know, um, is to get married to this man because uh, as a girl, uh, I can't be sent away. Like, who would guard me? Who would be my chaperone? So uh, I, you know, your I only was escape, into it. Your, your only escape, as you were told, was to marry this man and move yeah, to Yeah, I Canada. mean, I was told that this is, this is a way for me to get my education and I kind of got, bought into it. Um, uh, and his family promised my parents that uh, they would send me to school in Canada and, you know, everything would be amazing and everything would be great. And in my naivete, and I'm, I'm going to say my parents too, um, they thought that this was a win-win. What happened once you got here? Once I got here, I was told that uh, I should be grateful that I got to the real purpose of being a woman sooner than later and didn't get to go through all of that education crap. I was told that I should uh, be a good wife and a good daughter-in-law and a good mother. And that was my real purpose as a girl. And I did. I tried for many, many years to climb on that pedestal of being a good wife. And I somehow always fell short and then was humiliated and assaulted and insulted every day. And 
I started believing that, that it's all me, it's all my fault, I'm not good enough. What is that secret to perfect mm-hmm. wifehood that keeps eluding me? And you tried to escape as well. I did several times, but I was told that a woman cannot make it on her own. Uh, I was very afraid. I did not have any support in Canada. I didn't have family here. I was... Um, it must have been terrifying. It was Samra, very... You're, you were a young girl when you got here, mm-hmm. and you're, you're stuck in this situation. <laughs> and even when you want to get help, even when you know what's happening to you is wrong, there's no one there to help you. But that's the thing. You. I didn't know, because uh, even though it felt wrong... Everybody around me told me that it was normal um, and that I should somehow try better or do better. Uh, And good women are the ones who stay quiet for the sake of their family honor and for the sake of keeping the family intact. It's the woman's job. And I truly felt there was something wrong with me for many years. And I kept trying to make it work. And then, you know, there's a hot and cold of the abusive relationship. Like one minute he's doting on me and, you know, he's the best husband I could ever imagine. And then the next, you know, uh, he erupts into uh, violence and assault and I couldn't understand why, like what happened. It must have been me. And a lot of women stay because of that, because they're always hanging on to that hope that things will get better. So who did you turn to for help? My life changed when I started going to school. I mean, even during all those years, it was this little voice and little burning flame in my head that, yeah, I want to go to school. I want to get an education. So uh, I finished my high school through distance learning at home because I wasn't allowed to go to a regular school. And then I uh, fought and and, uh, started babysitting at home to save money and eventually started university. And I got permission to just take one course uh, in my first year. And I started uh, being uh, uh, taking that course at uh, the University of Toronto. And uh, I stumbled upon the Health and Counseling Centre. And there was a sign actually outside which had a bunch of questions like, do you feel intimidated? Do you feel like you've lost your voice? Do you feel like you're living in fear? And I'm just standing there mesmerized answering yes to all of those questions and then I go in and make an appointment and my counselor there uh, she was the first person who said to me it's not your fault and I was nobody had ever said that to you before. no but no one it had been 10 years uh, in that marriage no one had said that to me before and my world changed and I started going for regular counseling and learning that it, indeed it was not my fault and I'm not the only person who goes through abuse and I do have rights. Did your husband know about this? Not at the time, no. And I did try to then, uh, you know, tell him Oh, later on that I was like, maybe if I tell him all this and he realizes what he's doing is abuse and he would stop. But of course not, it got worse. And, uh, you know, slaps turned into kicks and punches and Eventually, um, I was afraid for my life. And uh, the the factor, the biggest factor that uh, drove me to walk away was uh, realizing that my girls will see this growing up and normalize it. And eventually, they may tolerate it too. And I did not want that uh, to happen to them. So I knew I had to break the cycle. We're chatting with Samra Zafar. Her book is called A Good Wife, Escaping the Life I Never Chose. Uh, By the time she was, what, 16, 17, you were married? Yeah, 17. I had just turned 17. 16 was when I was in, uh, then the marriage was fixed. Okay. And at that point, she had to leave her family behind in Pakistan and move to Canada. And her new husband and his family turned out to be nothing like what they had promised or what she thought was going to happen. A year. You spent 10 years in an yeah. abusive relationship and marriage? Yeah, just uh, almost 11. Yeah. Actually, no, 12. <laughs> 1999 to 2011. And so. so you were talking about how when you managed to go to the University of Toronto, you, you started getting counseling mm-hmm. and you realized what was happening. 
At what point did you say, I have to leave? It was, uh, it was not a moment. It was, uh, it was very gradual. Uh, there was still quite a bit of back and forth. There were a couple times when I left. Uh, one time, you know, I just um, left the home and went and stayed at a hotel and trying to figure out. But then I was like, no, maybe it's best if I, should, if I stay. Uh, my kids deserve to have a two-parent family and all those, you know, societal stereotypes that we seem to believe in. And and then I went back again. So there was, uh, I went back like five or six times. And, and actually, on average, a woman goes back seven times to her abuser before she finally leaves. Seven times? Yeah. yeah. So, because it's not that easy, especially when you have children involved and your confidence is low and you don't really know what's going to happen afterwards. And then you're told by everybody around you, well, you know, there's a big bad world out there that's going to chew you up and spit you out. <laughs> and, you know, you have no other reference point to believe otherwise. So when you did leave, how old were your girls when you left? I left in 2011, so they were uh, nine and four. What a huge challenge that would have been. Somebody who'd only been in this country for 10 years, you've got two small girls. Who did you turn to? Who helped you? I was uh, very blessed that I was a student at U of T. And honestly, that is that became my new community and my new family. So uh, when I left, I did not have anywhere to go. My husband had sold the house from under me and I literally was almost on the verge of being homeless. And uh, U of T gave me a place on student housing. So that's where I lived for the next two years. I was working four or five jobs on campus, raising my daughters and going to school full time as a full time student. And I found kindness and support in all kinds of places. My professors who would uh, spend a uh, you know, time encouraging me and motivating me, my friends who'd be there for me in my dark moments and show up with like tubs of ice cream and say, okay, let's drown our sorrows in sugar. Or um, are my mentors who helped me make the decisions that I did. So uh, that's where I found uh, my community and it takes a community to raise someone. What about uh, the legal system here? Was that a help to you in getting protection from your ex-husband? Yes and no. I mean, I had reported eventually, so I got uh, a restraining order in place uh, and uh, I got campus police involved in, in making you know making sure that uh, uh, things were uh, safe. But uh, I did run into some legal challenges because um, I was initially on legal aid and uh, my lawyer was really not that great and you know he he was taking his time and just taking me for granted because I was a legal aid client and then Mm. so I had to fire him and then get a lawyer on my own and pay them on my own so I was working a lot of night shifts on uh, uh, on campus housing on on my student campus jobs and things like that and just to just to pay for that and make ends meet. So why the book then Samra? What lesson do you want people to get from reading your book? Um, You know I've been sharing my story for some time now and every time that I would come off stage after doing a speech or, you know, every time I'd write an article, a lot of women would come up and say, oh, you can do it because you're so strong and I don't think I'm that strong. And my message with this book is it's not going to be easy. It is hard. It was hard for me too and you can still do it. I'm not superwoman. I'm, I was not this person who I am today when I was going through all of that. I was just as human and just as afraid and just as trapped as, um, as other women out there. And I want them to know that they're not alone and they have hope. And it's never, ever too late. Even after you go back seven times, it's not too late. Even after you go back 
20 times, it's not too late. So keep taking that one step. And, you know, you're not victims, you're warriors and you're fighters. And you have that power within you. So just find that and use that. What was it like for you, though, the first time you were up on stage mm. talking about your story, given... Oh, I was, I was a mess. I was crying. Like, I was crying and I, I just knew that I had to because... I knew that my story is not just mine. It is the story of women and girls from across the world. Violence against women is prevalent across cultures, across community, even in Canada, in North America, it's one in three women. And that's an underreported stat because it, uh, because it doesn't include emotional and uh, psychological abuse, which is often far more damaging. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and think about the children who grow up ex- being exposed to abuse and uh, kids don't just witness violence they actually experience it like it's happening to them and we mentioned that earlier too about this notion that people have that has been drilled into us that two-parent families you know it's it's we have to keep the families together because that's the most important Mm -hmm. thing but when the family is suffering through an abusive situation is that the best thing absolutely not uh i can tell you from my experience my kids and i are still healing from trauma things still come up as you know they will still sometimes have a nightmare or something you know um my younger daughter was crying the other day because she had a flashback that um daddy was on top of you and was hitting you and i was on the closet crying and praying to god to please save my mommy and those things get imprinted on our children's brains yeah those are scars those are invisible scars they cause a whole host of mental health issues later on and uh, the psychological trauma is lifelong. I remember things from my childhood because my father was abusive to my mother. And I remember fights and yelling and all. And that's what I uh, was a big factor why I stayed for 12 years because I didn't think there was any hope or anyone could be, could do better. So the damage control, uh, you know, it's, it's, it, it's humongous and the costs far outweigh the so-called benefits of a two parent family. I think for kids, it's much better to have one parent and a happy parent and a loving parent than have two parents who are constantly fighting and kids get ignored in the process. Do you think you have um, broken the cycle? I hope so. I certainly hope so. My older daughter came to me a few, um, a couple of years ago and told me that, Mom, I think my friend is in an abusive uh, relationship because her boyfriend uh, buys her flowers and chocolates and then during fights he calls her bad words and insults her. And while my heart went out to that girl who was going through that, I was so proud of my daughter for recognizing it because I have those conversations with them. And I tell them never to expect or accept anything less than full respect and love from whoever you're in a relationship with. That is a problem though, isn't it? That for younger and younger women Mm -hmm. is that they don't always recognize what those signs they don't. are, and, what those and early signs are. They don't, because we don't teach them. You know, abuse or uh, things like these are such taboo conversations that we brush these things under the rug. And, uh, you know, I'm a big advocate of talking to youth. So when I speak at universities and schools and, and uh, you know, or even my first TED Talk was exactly about this, that we should talk to our children and youth about what healthy relationships look like. You know, we're talking to kids about sexual health and physical health and, and now, you know, even mental health. But what about relationship health? Uh, a lot of these kids are seeing stuff at home that, gives them a very different view of what relationships are supposed to be what like. What a healthy relationship yeah. should be like. When, and, and they should learn that stuff at school or through, uh, through their communities that what, what are boundaries? Uh, how do you um, 
protect yourself? How do you call out an abusive behavior? Somebody saying, I love you to you within four days without getting to know you. That's that's a pretty early and very big warning sign. Uh, but girls don't know that. Girl, you know? They think it's romantic. They think it's romantic. Exactly. Or... Um, you know, if, oh, he's so passionate, that's why he gets jealous, or he loves me so much, that's why he gets mad when I talk to other boys. That's not romantic, that's abusive. And it is only the beginning, and it gets Those worse are control issues. Those are control issues, yeah. and abu- that's what abuse is about. It's about power and control. It's about somebody's need to control another person because they want to feel powerful and good about themselves. So, And that's how it starts. It never starts with a slap and a kick. That comes years down the road. The first time my ex-husband um, hit me was several years later. Initially, it was all these little things, little jabs at my self-esteem and those pokes in, in, you know, in my defense system. And eventually, when that slap and kick, ha- kick happened, my defense mechanism was already shattered. Worn down, yeah. yeah. So fascinating. Uh, Samra, thank you for talking to us about this today. Thank you. That is Samra Zafar. Her book, clearly a fascinating topic, is called A Good Wife, Escaping the Life I Never Chose. It is available now. that up. Those are the actual sounds of wolves. When it comes to animals that hold a special place in myths, reality, and legend in BC, the wolf is right up there on that list. They were once common all over North America, but by the early 20th century, that was a different story. I mean, that's now changing, meaning we are having more encounters and learning more about wolves than we ever knew before. Paula Wilde was working on a book about cougars, when she became fascinated with wolves, which does explain her latest book, actually, mm-hmm. Return of the Wolf, Conflict and Coexistence. She joins us now to talk about it. Paula, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. What was it that you learned about wolves that you said, okay, that has to be my next book? Well, when I was researching cougars, I learned that when wolves were reintroduced into Yellowstone National Park, they were actually chasing cougars off their kills. And so cougars were being pushed into marginal hunting territory. And I was became intrigued by how cougars are usually solitary animals and wolves live in packs and how cooperative they are. So that, that really intrigued me and I decided I needed to investigate further. Oh, you certainly did. Uh, Do we have a lot of myths about wolves? Oh, there's a lot of myths. Um, One is that um, um, wolves kill too much food, like they'll kill prey indiscriminately. There's a myth that wolves will not attack, a healthy wolf will not attack a human. There's myths that um, wolves howl at the moon. Uh, None of those are really true. Wait a minute, are you saying wolves will attack a healthy human? Oh, yeah. Yes, they will. Um, and well, this isn't making me feel very good about this. <laughs> well, it's not something you really have to worry about. In the last 100 years, there's probably been four human deaths caused by wolves. And the, the reason there's been so few is because for most of that time, there were very few wolves. But now changes to legislation and understanding of the importance of predators in the ecosystem wolf populations have rebounded, so interactions with humans are becoming more common. Now, there have been recent um, attacks in recent times and even deaths caused by wolves, but those were almost always due to a, a progression over time of wolves becoming comfortable around humans and expecting some kind of reward. So they, oh. they lost their fear of humans, and that's part of what my book goes into, that we need to keep wolves wild 
for our safety and for theirs. Right. So is it like kind of like bears? We talk about that with bears as well, is that we can't let them get too used to us. Exactly. Uh, wolves can be very, um, they can be curious. Uh, some wolves just seem innately bold. But in that case, you need to um, frighten them off, you know, yelling, waving your arms, maybe throwing some rocks. They can also be very interested in, they can be attracted to people with dogs because they see dogs as intruders into their territory or as prey. Oh. And they can also be attracted to human garbage, like if campers are not careful. And they can also be, they are very attracted to human belongings. And there are wolves that are known as camp robbers. They will steal shoes, pillows, belts, underwear. And the interesting thing is that some of these wolves have been seen carrying those same items around up to a year later. So my theory is that they take these items and they see them as toys or maybe souvenirs of some type. That would suggest a pretty high rate of intelligence for wolves. Oh, they're very smart. Very smart. Like for years, kayakers were told, keep your food in kayaks with hard hatch covers and then it will be wolf proof. Well, wolves have learned how to undo the buckles and slide those hatch covers open. So now... Really? Yeah, everybody's supposed to keep their food in a... uh, food safe, and if there isn't one provided at the campground, then they're supposed to use an old-fashioned bear hang. Wow. Okay. How is the health of the wolf population these days? I would say um, in BC, it's generally pretty healthy, and uh, wolf populations are increasing. So, I, yeah, I would say it's pretty healthy. And some of those myths that you talked about, wolves, like where does that come from? And I jokingly said to Paula before we started, let me guess, the movie (laughs) The Grey. And you said, yeah, pretty much. (laughs) Yeah, that's a lot of people have uh, misconceptions about wolves and they get them from movies, uh, fairy tales. I talked to one man that said um, his father was born and raised in Italy and he was always told as a small child, when you get out of school, run home as fast as you can or the big bad wolf will get you. And, um, you know, that, that could have been true at that time. There could have been wolves around. So w- these myths are passed down through generations. Right. Is it safe to say then that you said the wolf population is pretty good, that it has rebounded from 100 years ago? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, even in the uh, 60s or 70s, there was really no wolves on Vancouver Island and no wolves in certain parts of BC. Now the government estimates there's about... 250 on Vancouver Island and between 5,300 and a little over 11,000 on the mainland. But I mean, it's pretty hard to count wolves. So nobody Why really. Is that? Well, they're just, they're out there. They're always moving around. It's, um, it's pretty hard to count any wildlife. Can you describe a wolf's like their, what, the, what is their personality? Are they sociable amongst themselves? Like, do they, they travel in packs? Like, what are they like? Yes, they're, um, pack animals and they usually live in family groups. So that's the breeding pair or the dominant pair. And then they would have their young pups of the year. Possibly there would be uh, pups from the previous year 
year, so yearlings. There might even be an aunt and uncle, maybe a grandparent, or a wolf or two from another pack that they've allowed to join. They all work together. Their goal each year is to raise the pups, you know, so they all cooperate in hunting and looking after the pups. And they have, each wolf has a distinct personality. There's clowns, troublemakers, flirts, uh, strong leaders, good fighters. You know, they're just like people. Each one has a personality. This sounds like they have quite a complete societal structure. Oh, they do. They definitely do. The breeding pair are... um, the leaders of the pack, right. they're like the mom and dad, and they keep everybody in line. And um, they can be quite vigorous in their discipline. But, yeah, they do have a real society. How hard is it to get up close to these wolves, to these creatures, and, and study them? Um, you know, a lot of researchers um, can sort of insinuate themselves into a uh, wolf habitat and the wolves will become used to them and then they can study them. But in a way, that's a good opportunity to learn about wolves, but it also leads to the possibility of them becoming habituated to people. You know, and uh, as far as I know, no researchers feed wolves, but that's not to say that the next hiker that comes along won't do so either on purpose or inadvertently. Right, which is a bad idea. Exactly. What is it that you would like people to know about wolves? Well, that they're very complex, intelligent, social creatures, and that um, they're a very important part of a balanced ecosystem. And one of the things that really surprised me was how they communicate uh, within their own species and with other creatures. Like they... They have relationships with ravens, cougars, bears, um, and it was just really fascinating to find out about those dynamics. At what is their relationship with ravens? Well, uh, ravens follow wolves in order to scavenge their prey, but it's also believed that ravens will lead wolves to prey. In a way, because they would like to scavenge what's left, so they'll yes. make the wolves do the hard work. Exactly, oh, exactly. That is so fascinating. And ravens need wolves actually to kill something and rip it open so that they can access it. Ravens aren't really able to uh, penetrate a tough hide on a adult ungulate. So, so it's a yeah, it's a very interesting relationship. But on the other hand, scientists have estimated that. Ravens can steal up to 44 pounds of meat a day. What? Yeah. So we'll. That's your next book, Paula. I think that's it. You got to write about ravens now. That's fascinating. It would be tempting. (laughs) It would be. I could, I feel like we could talk to you all afternoon, but Paula, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. That's Paula Wilde. The book is called Return of the Wolf Conflict and Coexistence. Oh, if you love nature books, and I know there's so many people out there who do, I think you'll really, really enjoy this one. You know, George Takei is a man known for so many remarkable. Things He braved new frontiers in Star Trek as Hikaru Sulu, or Mr. Sulu, as he was called. It's a character he's played, what, on and off now and been known for for something like 50 years. But then there's so much more to George Takei. He's a social media superstar. He's more than 10 million followers on Facebook alone. He is an activist. He lobbies for LGBT rights. He talks about racism. He worked with it during the civil rights era to, to forward all of those ideas. And he's an author with a truly remarkable history. He's in Vancouver right now. He's here to talk about his new graphic memoir. It's called They Called Us 
enemy. It details his childhood in Japanese internment camps and the impact that had on him and his family. And what's really interesting, the book is told in in comic book form, like a graphic novel, but it's his biographical story. And it's amazing. I cannot recommend it enough. He joined us this morning and here's our conversation. Well, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about this. It's great to be here and back in Vancouver. Well, it's lovely to have you. Your book is called They Called Us Enemy. First of all, uh, congratulations on that. It is stunning to well, read. thank you very much. What made you want to write this in comic book form? Well, I grew up on comic books as a teenager and preteen and, and teenager and I absorbed in every bit of information I got from the uh, comic books. And I thought, you know, the, my mission in life has been to raise the awareness of that chapter of American history when Americans of Japanese ancestry were seen as the enemy simply because we looked like the people that bombed Pearl Harbor. Uh, it was an, and we were rounded up at gunpoint and incarcerated in barbed wire prison camps. And it happened here in Canada as mm-hmm. well. Uh, Japanese Canadians were imprisoned. Uh, it's a shameful chapter of both our country's uh, history. And yet, to this day, I uh, share my uh, childhood in- imprisonment with a person that I consider a uh, well-informed, uh, well-read person. And he is aghast when I tell, uh, told him, as a, as a child, I was in prison together with 120,000 other Japanese Americans from on the West Coast. People still to this day don't know that. But I thought we have to make it better in, in the future by having informed uh, adults, voters, um, people that are opinion makers, know this history. And so I I thought a graphic uh, memoir targeting uh, the preteens and teens and young adults uh, might be a way way to a hopeful uh, future America. And uh, so I call this book The Book of Hope, where we will have the next generation of voters and people that are going to be shaping our society, our American society, with this knowledge so that they will not allow something like what's happening today on the uh, southern borders or allow an orangutan in the White House to pass an executive order uh, banning all Muslims and, 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 and uh, classified them, classifying them as potential terrorists. That kind of wild, reckless policymaking would not be allowed to happen in the name of Americans. You were four years old when this happened, and you tell the story so vividly. And I think about that in terms of what you just said. We talked about children being detained at the border and the, the memories that they may have, the future stories that we're going to hear from them. Four years old. You're given 10 minutes with your family to get everything ready to leave the home. How vivid was that in your mind? And did you have to go back to those memories to tell this story? I, what's vivid is that morning when the soldiers came to uh, round us up. Uh, but I also wanted to uh, capture the reality of uh, this five-year-old kid. Pearl Harbor was bombed when I was uh, four, on April 20th, I turned five years old, mm-hmm. and it was a few weeks after that that uh, my 
father got us up very early in the morning. I'm the oldest. My brother was a year younger, and our baby sister was a baby. Uh, and uh, they dressed us hurriedly. And my brother and I were told to wait in the living room uh, while our parents did some last-minute packing in, in the uh, bedroom. So the two of us, my brother and I, were just gazing out the front window when suddenly we saw two soldiers marching up our driveway. They carried rifles with sharp, shiny bayonets on them. I could see it flashing uh, the sunshine. That, yeah. Yes. And they stomped up the porch with their fists. They began pounding on the door. I mean, that, that sound, to me, sounded like the whole house was trembling. My father came out and answered the door. And literally at gunpoint, we were ordered out of our own home. My father gave my brother and me pa small packages to carry. He hefted two heavy suitcases and we followed him out onto the driveway and stood there waiting for our, our mother to come out. And when she finally came out, she had our baby sister in one arm, a huge duffel bag uh, looking very heavy on the uh, right uh, hand, mm -hmm. and tears were streaming down her face. That was a terrifying mor moment, uh, morning that I'll never be able to forget. For any child, yeah, would, they would remember that. You dedicate the book to your mother and father for their undying love and life guidance. And it, you also said in the book that most Japanese Americans from your parents' generation don't like to talk about this. How did you get some of them to talk about their experiences? I think my parents felt uh, differently about that. Uh, yes, most of the uh, uh, parents of uh, my parents' generation were so pained and wounded and de uh, dehumanized by that that they, de they didn't want to share that pain with their children. Mm -hmm. My parents thought it was important for us to know uh, when we were the right age, when I became a teenager and I started asking questions about it. Uh, my father uh, engaged me in long after-dinner conversations, and he shared with me the uh, anguish of uh, taking his children behind barbed wire fences and looking at us and then seeing the barbed wire fence. And he said it tore him apart to wonder what his children's future might be like. What could it be like? Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it, it tortured him. And I un understood that. But he told me also that, and he filled me in on the various details. I, my real memories are that of a, a child. Uh, I had fun. I made discoveries. Uh, it was an exotic land, Arkansas. <laughs> We're from, from Southern California. Mm -hmm. We'd never seen trees growing out of the water and the, their roots snaking up and down. It was a whole different, fantastical world. Right, but for your parents, that was something completely different. It was different. a harrowing mm -hmm. experience uh, to be stripped of everything. His business was taken, uh, their bank account, life savings was taken, and our home was taken, and then their freedom and dignity was taken. When it was over, when, they, when you were all allowed to go home again, how did, how did they pick up and carry on? How did they continue to have faith in this country that they lived in? That's the other amazing part of the story. Yeah. And that's the other 
terrifying mem memory that I have. Our being rounded up was the first terrifying. Mm -hmm. And you'd think that after we were released, we would uh, have good memories of that. No, it was the most terrifying of all. Because here we were, penniless, ca absolutely impoverished, mm -hmm. and were let go. They gave us $25 and a one-way ticket to anywhere in the, uh, in the country that we wanted to go to. My parents decided to go back to Los Angeles, but it was a still hostile uh, 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 like environment for them to go back to. No house anymore, no life savings, all that gone? Everything was gone, and the hostility was still there. Uh, uh, jobs were very difficult. Housing was impossible. Our first home was on Skid Row in downtown Los Angeles, and that was a you know, because we, uh, we, uh, we adjusted to the routine and the uh, discipline and, and the uh, regimentation of incarceration. Mm -hmm. But it was sheer chaos and violence and noise and ugly, smelly, scary people staggering about, and leaning on the wall, sprawled on the street. Uh, once we were walking down the sidewalk uh, as a family, and this derelict, came staggering toward us, glaring at us. We, th we thought he was going to attack us. And then suddenly, as he neared us, he collapsed and he barfed. And my baby sister shri uh, shrieked, Mama, let's go back home. She thought the camp was home. Behind barbed wire right. fences. Because her whole life, she went in as an infant. And all she knew was the order and regimentation of camp. And, and Skid Row, with its horrible smell of human waste everywhere, in the hallway, in the, in, uh, on the street, in the alleys, and these scary people mm -hmm. fighting each other, sh uh, um, uh, men braying, and women and shrieking, pulling hair, and, and falling on the ground and wrestling each other, and the shriek of uh, 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 sirens day and night. It was a terrifying place. Before Pearl Harbor and, say, after the war, like, for your parents, what was life like? Before all of this happened, how were they treated, you know, by other people in society versus after the war? Did you talk to them about that? Yes. My father had a very successful dry cleaning business in uh, a very fashionable uh, part of uh, uh, Los Angeles, the Wilshire District, right mm -hmm. next to uh, the Bullock's Department, uh, Bullock's Wilshire which was the most elegant uh, Still a very department. nice area, yeah. But, uh, well, that's no longer uh, a department store. It's become a, a, law, a law school library. Uh, but the Art Deco architecture is a real landmark. Uh, so we had uh, uh, a very comfortable life. Uh, my fa my mo uh, father bought my mother a, a fur coat. And so, you know, we were doing well. Yeah. All that was ta uh, taken away. We had to start from scratch. In camp, my father was uh, a block manager in both camps, and uh, the people uh, had always looked to my father for assistance and uh, guidance, and he, they were desperate for, for jobs. And my father was working as a dishwasher in Chinatown. Uh, only other Asians would hire us. But uh, because uh, he, so many people needed his help, 
after his uh, dishwashing job, he opened up a, 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 an employment agency, which eventually became full-time uh, because the demand was so great. Uh, so he quit uh, the dishwasher uh, washer job and uh, helped other people get jobs. But they were all menial jobs that paid right. a pittance. Dishwasher, janitor, gardener. Compared to before. Compared to before. And he, now he was getting a, his fee was a fi- tiny fraction mm-hmm. of that pittance that they were getting paid. And sometimes with some people, he didn't collect uh, his uh, fee because he knew how desperate their situa- uh, situation was. Your book also, your graphic novel also goes into, of course, as you were growing up, you became more active politically involved in the civil rights era. You marched, you met Dr. Martin Luther King, what was that like? It was an absolutely unforgettable experience because uh, as I was having these after-dinner discussions, uh, the the civil rights movement was going on. Mm -hmm. And uh, my father did uh, talk about how in a people's democracy, it's a participatory democracy, and uh, a, a people's democracy is existentially dependent on people who cherish those ideals of, the, uh, of our system and actively participate. And uh, it's not just voting, it's also volunteering. Mm-hmm. And to show me how uh, our democracy has to work, uh, one Sunday afternoon he drove me downtown to the Adlai Stevenson for President campaign head- headquarters. He was uh, a... a, a eloquent speaker, a great governor of uh, the state of Illinois. And uh, so there I was thrown into that uh, uh, um, passionate uh, pit of uh, people uh, dedicated to getting Governor Stevenson elected president. And that's where I met Eleanor Roosevelt, who was a big supporter of uh, his. And at the same time I was uh, active in uh, uh, political campaigns, I saw that... uh, social justice campaigns, and particularly the, um, the uh, civil rights movement, uh, was an important uh, mm-hmm. uh, issue to be, get involved with. And I did a civil rights musical called Fly Blackbird. And so our uh, cast was invited to almost every other uh, uh, civil rights uh, rally. To at, perform. To, to perform. Yeah. And uh, the biggest of them all was at the uh, L.A. Sports Arena, where Dr. King was to be the keynote speaker. And we were invited to march in together with Dr. King. And uh, here we were in this huge arena that holds tens of thousands of people, just jam-packed, and the, and, and the excitement and the passion was high. And uh, we sang our hearts out, and then Dr. King spoke in that mellifluous an eloquent uh, voice of this, and he had our spirits soaring up to the rafters. You know what's amazing, George, when you tell all these stories is that we haven't even gotten to Star Trek yet. No, you know? oh, no. <laughs> you know, uh, because all of this I, I had at that time. I was yeah. in uh, Star Trek. It was a sound that I never heard before. But you, you've had this uh, unreal life, right, with all these stories so important and integral to American history. And now we're getting to how important Star Trek was. I said to you when you came in that I was just so honored to meet you because in my family, my you know parents, especially on my mother's side, arrivals from India in the late 1950s, Star Trek for them when they were growing up was 
a, a whole new world that opened up for them because a it looked of our that's right it was diverse and they couldn't believe this great show that was on TV that showed such diversity and you must hear that all the time you are such a symbol to people for that we do hear it all the time and I tell them that the credit really belongs to that extraordinary producer of uh, Star Trek the producer creator Gene Roddenberry he envisioned the uh, 23rd century as being one where we see our diversity as a strength. And that diversity, coming to, uh, together, working in concert as a team, was the power of that uh, uh, world. And uh, so uh, uh, he said the Starship Enterprise, where the story takes place, uh, is really a metaphor for Starship Earth. And the diversity of this planet, people coming from all different parts of the planet, different races, different cultures, different faiths, all coming together. And that, to be able to tap the diverse uh, vantage points uh, uh, when uh, analyzing a challenge that you have makes us that much uh, stronger and better. And so the uh, makeup of the crew of the the Starship Enterprise uh, uh, looked like that. So we had the casting of... uh, well, a Canadian as the captain of uh, the uh, that's right <laughs> uh, the uh, uh, enterprise. Uh, the uh, the European character was uh, the Scottish Scott uh, uh, engineer Montgomery Scott. Yeah. Montgomery Scott, and he was a Canadian as well from Vancouver, right here. Yeah. <laughs> so two Canadians at the leadership. Uh, uh, the communications officer was an African woman. And Nichelle Nichols uh, embodied much more than just Africa oh, so because much, yeah. she had French uh, ancestry as well as Cherokee ancestry, a Native American. And uh, my character was to represent the whole of Asia. But Asia is diverse uh, in itself. And uh, 20th century Asia had been turbulent with uh, warfare, colonization, rebellion, and he didn't want to uh, bring that aspect in. But his dilemma was, what name to give to this Asian character? Because Asian surnames are all nationally specific. Right. Tanaka is Japanese, Wang is Chinese, Kim is Korean, Delgado is Filipino, right. you know, and India. So... Uh, you know, so he, how cho- why, why choose Sulu then? Well, he uh, had a map of Asia uh, pinned on his wall. Uh-huh. He was looking at it, and he saw that off the coast of uh, the Philippines is the Sulu Sea. And he thought, the waters of a sea touch all shores. And that's how my character came to have the name Sulu. And did you ever think, when you were doing Star Trek back then, that all of these years later you would still be talking about it and how important it was? <laughs> I'll tell you, uh, during uh, the filming of the pilot, Jimmy Doohan, uh, Scotty, the right? Vancouverite, uh, uh, and I were chit-chatting. And he said, how, uh, how, how long do you think, that, uh, or first of all, uh, will this series be a hit? And how long do you think it'll last? And I said, well, just judging from the past, the shows that I really thought were great, the the shows that I loved, the shows that were quality, acting, writing, uh, directing, 
those were the shows that God canceled after this first season. <laughs> and so with luck, we might get two seasons. Well, I got even luckier. We got three seasons, despite the fact that we announced that we were boldly going on, on a five-year mission. The most destructive alien life form weren't the Klingons or the Andorians. They were the NBC programming executives. <laughs> yeah, but it worked out okay for you. Um, George, I can't thank you enough for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. It's been great meeting with you. That is George Decay. He joined us in studio earlier this morning. And then, of course, after it was all over, I said to him, George, come on, everybody knows the worst Star Trek enemies were the Romulans. Come on, let's. And so then we had a very lively debate about that as well. Uh, he will be at Indigo on Robson. That is tomorrow evening at 7 p.m. talking about this amazing book, his best-selling new graphic memoir, They Called Us Enemy. You know, every generation has their way of doing things, right? Uh, baby boomers did things differently than their parents did. Gen X did things differently than baby boomers. And now millennials, of course, are doing things differently than all of those other generations. And a new study is kind of cementing that fact, actually. Uh, the study that was done by the Cardis Group shows that fewer Canadian young adults are married or even living together than in the past, and that more and more of them are deciding to just be alone. Now, this report is very cleverly called the Living La Vida Lonely Report, and we are going to get some of the details on it now with Peter John Mitchell, who's a senior researcher at the Cardis Think Tank. Peter, thank you very much for joining us. Hi, Simi. Thanks for having me on. What kind of work does Cardis do? Um, well, we're a social policy think tank, and we're particularly interested in uh, the social uh, institute, uh, social institutions, and uh, sort of the interrelatedness of of different groups within within a community. So, how does our common life affected by things like family or by education or these other areas? So, that's the kind of work that we do. Basically, okay. research group. Yeah. So, what did you look at here? So, we looked at. Um, Young adults, young Canadians between the ages of 20 and 34, I'm asked, what, is, what are they doing in terms of partnerships? What are they doing in terms of marriage, terms of living together? And what we found looking over the last 20 years of Sense of Seda is that nearly six in 10 young adults are going it alone, going it either not married or not living with a partner. And that's uh, up from about five in 10 just 20 years ago. So what we're seeing is that fewer are getting married and some are living together um, outside of marriage, yet um, that group is not growing as quickly as marriage is declining. So we're seeing more and more young adults uh, not in partner lifetime partnerships. Are they talking about why that is? Yeah, so uh, the reasons why that might be are uh, are probably numerous and interrelated and, and somewhat complicated. It might be that young adults simply uh, are just choosing not to enter partnerships. They're taking their time, and that's certainly uh, obviously a valid uh, life approach for sure. But um, we're also seeing that uh, there might be some factors external to that that are, that are playing a part. So, for instance, more young people are spending longer in post-secondary education that's a good thing to get good jobs or at least trying to find entry into the job market, but they're bringing a lot of debt with them, unfortunately. And the housing market, particularly in big urban places, is really difficult to get into. So that's, uh, that's sort of delaying some of these other uh, life decisions. So um, when we do polling and when we look at attitudes of young, young adults, they would prefer to be financially stable before entering into permanent uh, sort of lifelong partnerships. And so getting to that point of financial stability is certainly uh, one of the things that, that's becoming very difficult and is perhaps delaying uh, um, partnerships into uh, 
uh, into the in the thirties and even beyond that. Isn't that interesting, Peter? Because you would in, in previous generations, and like even in my generation, uh, the financial security sometimes came when you were in a relationship and you worked together to build financial security. But these, this generation is seeing it differently. Yeah, there's definitely been an attitudinal shift, and even sociologists have noticed this. They, they've suggested that maybe uh, uh, my parents' generation would have got married maybe in their early 20s, found a career, kind of got established, bought a house, then had kids. Um, now we're seeing that sort of marriage no longer being sort of the foundation for building a life on. Now we're seeing it, um, sociologists are saying it's like a capstone. It's like once I achieve these other markers of adulthood, then I feel ready to settle down into marriage. So that's really pushing off these partnership decisions until uh, till later on. We've, we're seeing it um, into the 30s. And, uh, and we did some work earlier this year and found that actually um, uh, uh, that, that marriage is declining um, even into, uh, into the 40s and into the mid-50s as well. Interesting. So that would really show like much more of an emphasis on the individual, wouldn't it? Because sometimes I think if you ask previous generations, they'd say they didn't feel like they were grown up until they got married. Yes, and in fact, I had somebody say that to me in my early 20s, too. She said, life really began when I got married. And I think that's a, just a very different understanding of, uh, of uh, growing up than, than in the past. And, and I think it's interesting to see that this trend is happening among other trends, too. So we're seeing young adults uh, often stay at home longer. So even into the, the late 20s, we're seeing about a quarter of young adults living in the family home. So they've either moved out and had to come back, or they've just stayed. Some of that is economic factors. Some of that is is also just cultural expectations that we're seeing more multi-generational households. And so that, that's a, uh, just a choice that, that, that's being made. And, and uh, some of those people are providing care to older adults as well. So there's a, a number, I think, factors going on here. Now, Peter, what do you think some of the repercussions of this could be? Well, I think on a personal level, if people are wanting to get married, and we uh, have seen some uh, some data points that would suggest that of unmarried people in their 20s, early 30s, about 50% of them say they'd like to get married at some day. So that could create some frustration if uh, they're, they're um, not able to find those partners. And some of the reasons that we're seeing in, in other data sources are suggesting the financial, as I mentioned, or harder to find, uh, to find uh, the right person. So there's some frustration perhaps on the personal level, that kind of delays entry into, into having kids and having as many kids as we like. Um, and sometimes those have bigger implications for wider society in terms of uh, we have an aging society, we have uh, f- fewer kids being born, and that can put some strain on, uh, on our social safety nets and other uh, economic aspects as well. Right, because I mean, we're not going to feel the full impact of this for a couple of decades, are we? Yeah, I think that's certainly true. So that will um, uh, that will challenge us, and we'll have to look at other ways and other uh, sort of social connections to kind of fill those gaps as well. So it does have some implications, even perhaps for for loneliness or social isolation. We'll have to look at other ways to uh, to build those social networks as well. And older parents. I mean, they're going to be much older when they have children. That's true, and that has implications for even intergenerational relationships. Yeah. That uh, that down the road, maybe uh, children won't uh, have as long a relationship uh, uh, with their grandparents or even know their grandparents at all. So that definitely does change some of those uh, interfamily dynamics. Okay, so they're putting off getting married as well, and they're putting off home ownership. Where are they living? Are they living on their own then, or are they just happy being single? 
Well, I guess it would all depend. Certainly, as we said, some people are, are, are uh, finding themselves in the family home for a little bit longer, so that's part of it as well. Some of them are finding, I guess, roommates and other ways of, of living together. There's even, uh, I think, a book out a few years ago that looked at this kind of trend in, in urban cities and finding that uh, many people were just choosing to have uh, their own space, have their own apartment, uh, but often economics uh, makes that a real challenge, and so people are kind of finding other uh, roommates or other arrangements to kind of figure out uh, how, how to... Uh, how to uh, how to live and how to make that yeah. work economically, right? Have we ever seen a generation do something like this before? Like I was saying earlier, every generation does things a little bit differently. But have we seen this kind of thing before? Well, it's interesting. If you look at the the, the average age of, of marriage, um, even just back in the 1980s, I think for women it was around 25, age 25. Um, we estimate that that's been pushed off into the 30s. So this is a really long trend that's been building for decades and decades, along with some of the other trends around it. So this is quite unique to see um, to see uh, this kind of partnership uh, put off and in some cases uh, not, not realized or not reached. Hmm, okay, so now after doing this, then, do you have more questions, and what would you like to look at next? Yeah, I mean, I'm always interested in into why these uh, why these trends are happening. Um, I've always thought too that marriage needs sort of other sort of social institutions and other things around it to kind of support it. And so, if those aren't there, how does that affect um, our understanding of what marriage is? And also, um, it's sort of interesting to see these dating apps uh, uh, proliferate. And, and I see now that Facebook is even more uh, getting involved in the game. And so, how, even how we're meeting and marrying is very different. And I, I'd be interested in exploring what that might mean. I guess maybe that's also why they're putting it off. Yeah, perhaps. Although it's interesting that uh, uh, there's a great debate about those apps and do they actually, uh, they, you know, they grow the pool of potential, uh, potential uh, partners, but at the same time, um, there's some data that would suggest that maybe those relationships don't last as long or, or whatever. So I think there's very much a debate about that. I think the, the ways that we used to partner before that had these kind of social supports, you know, maybe your cousin had a friend that kind of yeah. introduced you, that's less so happening. And so some of those, uh, you know, that friend to vouch for that, that, that person that you met or whatever, some of those aspects and some of those supports are no longer there. So, or there at a lesser extent. So I wonder how that will affect how we meet and marry and partner. That is so fascinating. Peter, thank you so much for your time. Well, thanks for having me on. That was Peter John Mitchell, senior researcher at the Cardis Think Tank, author of the Living La Vida Lonely Report. This, you know, we're not fully seeing the impact of this, but we will in the years and decades ahead. So essentially, their report looked at census data between 1996 and 2016 for people aged 20 to 34. And what they found with that generation, which we call like the millennial generation, is that there has been a slow but steady growth in the number of young people who are not not married, not living together, and not even in a relationship, essentially. Uh, And mainly they're citing economic conditions. And many are also deciding to move back home with the parents. And they said this shows that the trend is actually delaying uh, their moving into what they consider to be adulthood and putting off also having children. And I'm sure if you know any people of that age, you're like, oh, Yeah, I did see that, actually. That's exactly what was pointed out. And also, we're not meeting people the same way that we used to as well, right? It used to be that, as uh, Peter was pointing out there, that maybe you met through a friend of a friend or somebody introduced you. I don't think people do that anymore, right? That all, and that all has to be a perfect match. Have you ever noticed that? Like right away, people want like the perfect match. There's no more like compromise or settling or anything like that. People want it to be like 
love at first sight, they want to feel it right away, and they want it to be absolutely perfect. This is going to be a very interesting next 10 years to see how this all works out, isn't it? Uh, so that was uh, Peter John Mitchell from the Cardiff Think Tank, and the report is called Living La Vida Lonely.